Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. This week, we're gazing into the future with my guests Ben Page, Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, and Jonathan Broughton, Managing Director of Workshare Consulting. And career coach and wellbeing expert Tracy Forsyth gives us some tips on projecting confidence in meetings and pitches. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. Before we start this week's show, a reminder to sign up for Telecast Plus, our brand new newsletter containing my picks for stories of the week, interesting charts, rumours, execs for hire, and all sorts of other interesting TV industry stuff from around the web you may have missed this week, compiled by me. It's completely free. Just sign up at telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com and it'll drop into your email inbox every Friday. You'll also find the link in the episode description. So, sign up now and we'll see you in your inbox every Friday. So it's a slightly different telecast this week. This time of year, it's traditional for industry media to take a look back at the year and reflect on the key issues and turning points that have shaped the year in TV. But I think we've covered that off already. And let's face it, who wants to go back and relive a year that many of us probably want to chuck in the bin? So let's look forward to 2021 instead. Most of the talk about Brexit will be over and hopefully many of us will be able to access a coronavirus vaccine that, fingers crossed, should enable us to move back to some sort of normality. Now, we all know that many things will have changed forever in terms of the content industry, and we've been discussing that on many of our previous shows. But I wanted to try and picture change both at a macro consumer level to find out what the public might be looking for in 2021, as well as the TV industry side of things. So hopefully we'll be able to paint a bit of a picture and provide some insight into what producers might consider pitching to networks and streamers and try and anticipate what type of shows might be in demand in 2021. To help with that, first of all, I chatted with Ben Page, Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, 
a frequent writer and speaker on trends, leadership and performance management. Ben has directed thousands of surveys examining consumer trends and citizen behaviour. And following that, I caught up with Jonathan Broughton, Managing Director of Workshare Consulting, who takes us through his predicted TV industry trends for 2021. So I'm delighted to welcome Ben Page, Chief Executive of Ipsos Mori, to Telecast. Hi, Ben. How are you? Um, I'm good, actually. Yeah, I mean, the year has turned out to be one of our best years ever, but it certainly didn't look that way in April. No. I think a lot of people may be weathering the storm a little bit better than they may have thought in sort of May, June time, when it all looked a bit bleak. Thank you for joining us and spending time. And I realise that Ipsos Mori is incredibly active within the whole COVID monitoring. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So obviously, we're tracking public opinion. But the other thing that we're doing um, with Imperial College, but also with the Office of National Statistics, is we're heavily involved in two separate studies, which are looking at the prevalence of the disease in the population as a whole, because the challenge with the testing program at the drive-in centres is, of course, that's mostly people who have got symptoms of the disease coming to find out if they've got it. The big One of the big challenges with the disease is that many people who have it, between 50 to 80% in our samples, don't have any symptoms in a week before we randomly find them in the population. But of course, they may be infecting others. So what we've been doing um, from the summer is running very large studies involving hundreds of thousands of people who are sampled at random from NHS databases uh, in order to see just where the disease is. What's showing up in hospitals is only part of what's actually going on. And in order to know how, you know, how the lockdowns or otherwise need to be structured, you need that data. So we've been doing that for government and it's keeping us incredibly busy. We had to build a cold chain of 5,000 courier vans with fridges in, uh, in record time in order to collect swabs and keep them between two to eight degrees to get them to the laboratory for the testing. Wow, huge logistical operation and, and possibly not something that we might have expected of Ipsos Mori. It's one of the things about our business is that people think, you know, they think of opinion polls or something, or maybe if you're in TV, you'll know that we're involved with things like Barb and viewing figures. But hmm. actually, I've got hundreds of documentary filmmakers all over the world who are doing ethnography, just studying people that we're using film. We're doing things in virtual reality. I mean, literally, you name it. If it's anything to do with what human beings do or think, we're probably doing it. What I really wanted to talk about this week was really start a bit of future gazing into 2021. I think we've all had enough of 2020. It can't be worse, right? It just cannot be worse. I think this no. is the good news, unless there's a meteor hits us. I better not actually, I take that back in case the meteor Otherwise, <laughs> it can't be worse. Really, on a on a sort of macro level, is to you know start to think about how we can emerge out of this pandemic and how that's going to affect consumer behaviour, and therefore how that is going to affect the TV industry, and what that might mean for broadcasters and distributors and producers as well. So, can you talk us through a few trends that you're expecting to see next year? Sure. I mean, one of the things that we run is called Ipsos Global Trends, which is a huge study, 22,000 people over 33 countries, where we track over the long term underlying changes in among consumers and in societies. And we launched the report, of course, as luck would have it in February. 
COVID was mentioned in the report, but nowhere near as much as it would have been if I'd published it in March. <laughs> what we did as a result was then go back and repeat some of it in September to see what had shifted during the year. And I think there are five things that I think are, are there, are happening, etc. So putting aside the massive economic dislocation of uh, COVID for one second, we had thought that this would be the year of climate change. We had more searches for Greta Thunberg than Beyonce uh, at the back end of last year. And actually what's happened during the pandemic is that concern about climate change has kept rising. Governments are using green recovery, green infrastructure, green energy as part of the stimulus packages to try and re re-energize the economy and, and, and partly to sort of change employment in some cases and to, to build new industries. So we've seen overall across the world concern about climate change despite the here and now problem of the pandemic uh, that's kept going. And I think that puts pressure on industry to think about uh, how it reduces carbon in its activities and broadcasting might be no different. But there will also be, you know, how, you know, people's behaviours, how are we going to change every boiler in Britain, which is what we will mm. need to do in order to hit our targets. That's fascinating. I mean, not only, not only is it about consumers and how they need to adapt and how perhaps the TV industry can educate consumers in order to make those uh, meaningful changes but actually how tv businesses may also operate themselves there are some guidelines in place the albert guidelines in order to create greener programming but essentially you're seeing climate change has been a really key issue that's really going to be top of mind right across the world next year consumers just expect business to do the right thing and concern about it, interestingly, as I say, has just gone on rising globally. It's the one mm. thing that people globally agree on as a problem. They don't all agree on the solutions, but they globally, it is the thing that actually unites humanity in terms of what we're concerned about. Uh, the challenge is that people expect politicians and business people to fix things for them, and they want people to make it easy for them. And there are some good examples. Britain, actually, is, is a brilliant example of on renewables. We're the, we're the world leader in the OECD countries in terms of renewables. And we've done that without a referendum. We've done that by just putting up electricity prices, changing some tax incentives and planning. And we've built the capacity to, to have, you know, at lots of points of the year, all of our energy coming from, the majority of our energy coming from renewables. So there's lots that people can do, but they will need nudging and they expect leadership and broadcasting and TV can be, can be part of that leadership. Well, there's some tips not only on content, but obviously on uh, strategic approach for TV businesses there. What else are you seeing in terms of major trends in 21? Yeah, I think the other thing is because people's incomes are going to be squeezed, we've got um, estimates of unemployment hitting 7.75%, which is a massive increase and uh, from where we are when we were just a few months ago. Uh, and you've also got a pandemic disease around that is going to keep on killing people and we aren't all going to be vaccinated until late summer at the earliest next year. So you can what we what we are likely to see, and we've already seen some signs of this, is a rise in sort of nostalgia, and we've certainly seen some of that during lockdown in terms of content, but also simplicity. And so it's sort of staying at home more. You've got less money. You cook more meals at home. You get a bit, do a bit of DIY. It's those sort of simple pleasures. Of meeting friends. We saw it after two thousand and eight. And I think we'll see it again. After 2008, there was a sort of takeoff in things like knitting. Um, 
So you may see, you know, home butchery and God knows what else. But I think there's certainly that that sort of retreat to the home is certainly for, for the near future because of a lack of money to a certain extent. People wanting to save money by not going out and splashing their cash in the same way. They're worried. Even when they've kept their jobs, they're worried about the future. And there's been a massive increase, of course, in people's savings for those who've stayed in employment. But it is mm. that sort of just I think I think also lockdown has made a lot of people reappraise their spending. And actually, I certainly have my credit. You know, lockdown means as a reasonably well-paid CEO, I save a lot of money during lockdown because, of course, I don't go out to restaurants all the time, etc. And then you sort of think, was that actually making me happy spending all that money every week? doing that or actually am I, I'm enjoying cooking at home sometimes so I can see at, at different income points you can see people reappraising things and it's that sort of actually we can have a simpler life and we don't need to spend all that money make do and men 2.0 maybe well absolutely and, it, and that of course in, in in the fashion industry that's another trend which cuts in with the climate change agenda and people reflecting on their consumption habits you know fast fashion is rapidly becoming you know unacceptable politically yeah yeah, absolutely. And also, that's another major uh, contributor to climate change as well, in terms of a, an industry that is full of pollutants, etc. So, hmm. so, uh, so maybe producers might be thinking of more craft-based format ideas. Yeah, well, how do you fix things? How do you fix all the things around your home? What are you doing? I mean, a show about all the electronic devices that you have around your house that you no longer use anymore. Britain is, we are per capita, we're one of the most culpable in terms of throwing, throwing out electronic devices without restoring them. We're one of the biggest electronic polluters in the world. Hmm. And everybody has got loads of gadgets around that they just, and with lithium in them, etc. So there's definitely something, probably something about that. Yeah. Instead of antiques, go and find your old electronic devices and cables and God knows what else and recycle them properly. Good tips there. How about Black Lives Matter? I mean, that's obviously been a really key change this year. How does it affect things next year? Well, we've got 68% of British businesses who say they're going to do more on inclusion and diversity in 2021. The lockdowns have focused people's minds on unfairnesses and inequality. We had record, the highest ever level of concern about race relations in Britain because of the murder of George Floyd in America during lockdown, which is really interesting. And I think there's also a generational shift going on. So people in their 40s and 50s sometimes don't appreciate what Gen Z uh, feelings about this are. I mean, I've, I felt this in my own business as a CEO. What I think is right on and woke um, as a 55-year-old is quite different than what a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old now thinks about. And so I think, you know, certainly there is going to be more pressure on, coming from inside businesses, more pressure inside society to move on this. Remember, a third of school children now are black, Asian or minority ethnic. I don't particularly like that expression, Some, you know, but they're a BAME now. So our society, the audience is literally changing. And I think we've hit this point where you're going to see action. Certainly businesses saying it's going to do things. What, it's, what it actually does may not be as dramatic as what it says, but we're certainly going to need some action. And the media is not going to be excluded from that. Evan Shapiro was on the show a couple of weeks ago for, um, and he was talking about lecturing to students at uh, New York University. And this was something he was getting through uh, loud and clear about the change that they're demanding when it comes to diversity and inclusion, both on camera and behind the camera as well. So this is something that was really, really an important issue for them. So businesses, really, if they're not addressing this properly now, 
they really need to step up and look at things in 21. Well, they're going to be called out. I mean, it's, re- it's really interesting with Sainsbury's, you know, doing the having the black family for Christmas. And of course, all the, you know, they get racists and trolls attacking them online. And then, of course, you see all the other supermarkets piling in on their side. The times have moved on and it's not just about ethnicity. I mean, if you look at things like sexuality, 88% of people of my age describe themselves as completely straight. The figure for Gen Z is 66%. Things are moving and we've got to keep up with that. It's difficult because the audience is diverse. You've got one of the challenges in trying to please or indeed govern the British is that if you look compare Britain now with how Britain was in the 1960s, In the 1960s, if you were describing British society, it would be like a sort of fairly tall mountain. And everybody, in terms of their income distribution, would be clustered around this fairly tall but narrow mountain. Now Britain has got, of course, you know, uh, we're, we're heading for hundreds of thousands of people in their 90s. They have quite different attitudes from people in their 20s. In terms of income distribution, you've got just a wider range of income distribution and the, and the opportunities that that income distribution gives different people. So trying to please everybody, the audience is getting more and more heterogeneous in many ways. And I think but that, but that but all, and also the societal expectations on diversity are changing. So lots of things to think about in that area, I think. And you mentioned Sainsbury's and, you know, we've seen... TV advertising, you know, going through an extraordinary dip in uh, 2020 and then rebounding somewhat. How are brands, big brands and challenger brands, how are you expecting to see brands addressing the market in 21? I think there's huge opportunities for brands that, as always, and this is what we would say in any situation like this, that continue investing in brand building. And that's not tactical digital advertising. That is, you know, getting to the mass audiences, being mentally and physically available. And you can, you know, TV remains absolutely vital for doing that. The other opportunity that big brands have is that during a moment of crisis, People return to the things that they know and love. Spam saw record sales during 2020. And people go back to the brands of their childhoods so that all of that mental architecture that brands have built up over time pays off. There's also a sort of retreat to security and comfort. People want, they want reassurance. And some of that is, is familiarity. Uh, we can see that. We've seen a big shift in drivers of consumer choice during 2020. So this is a moment for big brands to use their deep pockets to to build on their advantages against some of the challenger brands, quite frankly. And it will be really interesting to see uh, when the dust settles in a few years' time, who was sensible and did that. What fascinated me was a number of brands that we all know and are aware of and obviously stimulate a certain emotional response when we see them whether it's Kellogg's or whatever we've saw a lot of these brands stop advertising when there were record audiences through the summer which was to me was extraordinary it's a case of if there's less advertisers why wouldn't you carry on you know really ram home your advantage I tend to agree with you. I think it's just that sort of short-term disruption. Everybody was panicking in in March and April about spend and budgets. Uh, You know, we saw, I I lost in April 10 to 20% of my revenue overnight just disappeared of what I thought was going to be there. I mean, fortunately, it's now come back. But so I think I, I think for many brands, you know, the short term about balancing the books, and if you if you're worried about things, you you make those short term decisions. But of course, as I say, the ones that stay in the market uh, often will benefit in the long run. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see how those braver businesses will uh, maybe be reaping the benefits in the months and years ahead. And how about the home? We're all stuck in the home, whether we like it or not, really. And we're all working from home. And obviously, you know, hopefully that is going to loosen up and change a little bit. But it's pretty much changed forever, hasn't it? I think it's likely that people won't go back to the nine to five time spent inside what are effectively desk farms in many modern offices that we were used to before. Business leaders have noticed that they can run businesses successfully with home working. They've noticed that they they themselves can work from home. And therefore, we've got half of British business saying that, and indeed globally, saying that they will move back to a blended type of home and office arrangement where people come in for two or three days a week, but do the thought work somewhere else. We've got British business predicting that it will use 20% less floor space in future. If you've got five offices, businesses are planning to close on average one of them. So that has all sorts of implications for our city centres. It has some implications for some brands, because if you're selling deodorant, one of the things we know is people use less of it when they work at home than when they go into an office. Uh, but it, I think so home becomes more important. That That's good for people like IKEA and, and DIY. Many, many people have enjoyed the flexibility. And as they see it, even if they're working longer hours, better work-life balance from working at home. So it seems very unlikely that we'll just flip back to how we were before. And I think as with e-commerce, this is an acceleration of an existing trend, which means it's more likely to stick. We were already working more flexibly than 20 years ago, and this has just given it steroids. And it showed so many organizations that they don't even necessarily need an office. Proclaiming the death of the office, though, I'm certainly not doing that because we need a place to build culture. We need to bring people together physically to do that. We need training places. We need serendipity. We need water cooler moments. You can't do all that. Uh, on Zoom calls, but nevertheless, a sort of more flexible type of working with more time spent working at home seems almost certain for a lot of people in future. Yeah. And, uh, and again, there may be some programming ideas that producers may want to think about with the way that we're living rapidly changing now and uh, and obviously here to stay. I mean, yes, it's the revenge of suburbs, actually. If you look at footfall in London, what we noticed was a 60% decline in footfall in the middle of London but only even during lockdown, but only a 30% decline in the suburban areas where people are out and shopping locally, etc. And so something about suburbs might be uh, interesting. There's lots of food for thought there for TV producers and different businesses involved in the content industry. Um, so thank you so much. I'd love to have you come on the show again, maybe sometime in uh, 21, and uh, and we can maybe review where we are and, uh, and maybe look again at some tips for the back end of the year. Absolutely. And let's see which predictions come true, because as you know, most predictions are wrong. It's what keeps me in business. <laughs> thank you, Ben. And take care. We'll see you soon. No problem. So to discuss the trends in 2021 in the TV industry specifically, I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Broughton, Managing Director of Workshare Consulting. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to Telecast. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. You've identified five kind of key trends that you think we're going to be seeing in the, uh, in the TV industry specifically over the next year or so. Can you take us through those? The five trends, just just to give a little summary, they're largely trends which are affecting, you know, firstly, the inter interactions between VOD and, and pay TV. So we're talking streaming maturation and hybrid services and pay TV telco integration. Um, at the same time, we're seeing the emergence of 
new players, new people who are interested in aggregating these these VOD platforms and VOD services, people like Roku, people like Amazon Channels. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And again, we'll talk about how the maturation of the, the streaming model will in fact lend itself to changing business models um, and different ways to, to monetize content. Um, so vertical integration and mergers and acquisitions. Um, and finally, uh, COVID crunch, talking about the ongoing effect of COVID in 2021 we're all maybe hoping that 2021 is the year that we finally put covid in the bin but obviously it's going to be around for a little while until we all get a vaccine it's obviously still going to have a a lasting impact from january onwards so talk us through this covid crunch and how, how you see that playing out so COVID crunch is a term I'm, I'm using to talk about the impending, uh, not recession, but cooling of the market, which we'll expect to happen in, in 2021. Uh, effectively, a, a, lot of, a lot of entertainment services found that in 2020, there was you know, a huge increase in demand. Now, obviously, if you're running on an advertising model or if you're trying to install pay TV in people's homes, you might not have seen this because of the inherent difficulties in actually getting your product to market or getting people to to pay for the advertising to fund it. Um, But certainly there were huge areas which saw massive spikes. So we're talking TVOD, um, SVOD, effectively anything that has a, a transaction or subscription payment that was virtual saw a massive, massive spike in usage. Um, and for a lot of these these companies, uh, a spike in revenue. Um, to put it bluntly, 2020 saw the highest growth of SVOD that there has ever been in, in absolute terms. Um, so if you look at the sort of global market, it added between three and four billion pounds of, of, of new revenue, which it's, it's not done before. Um, yeah. So VOD had a good year in 2020, to put it, mm. to put it bluntly. Um, the problem with this is, and the VOD services, uh, you know, such as, such as Netflix have been warning about this as early as March this year, so that they're really on this, is that they expect that 2021 will show a cooling of growth um there's a, there's a couple of reasons for this you know naturally you'd, you'd see that as people come out of lockdown and i'm and i'm fully hoping that we are out of lockdown in 2021 that is my assumption that naturally people's sort of uh, entertainment habits will revert to back what they were more in the, the 2018 29 period so more more going out to the pub and restaurants um, and less staying in watching netflix so naturally there'll be people who are less interested in buying new subscription services because there isn't that need for for so much entertainment. Mm. And the second problem is SVOD is incredibly driven by the ability to create a pipeline. Um, And effectively what this is, is it's the free trial list. It's it's exposing people to the idea that your SVOD has some nice entertainment content. It's getting them interested uh, in that. It's getting them a free trial. It's getting their credit card details. And then it's converting them to be a... A full subscriber and that takes months and months and months and in fact in some cases it, uh, people exist on this sort of funnel of conversion for for a year or more 2020 saw a huge number of these sort of funneled um, consumers turning into full SVOD subscribers um, which is great for for 2020 but it means that in 2021 of course this this funnel is very empty there aren't enough uh, potential subscribers that exist in the pool to continue yeah. the to grow the pot. So 
long story short, what what we'll see in um, 2021 is is actually, you know, like I said, not a recession, but growth rates in SVOD, which are perhaps you know half of what they were in 2020. Which is interesting because you, if you also think about 2021 and streaming, you're going to be thinking about the new guys. So the Viacom, CBS, NBC, Discovery, Warner Media, all of those guys coming to market, trying to gain traction in a year that's going to see a calling in terms of subscriber acquisition. You know, a lot of these subscription services have not obviously publicized the fact that, you know, a certain percentage presumably quite a large percentage over 2021 of their in, in inverted commas subscribers have actually been trialists and maybe are, are on a free free trial you know i mean that's i think everybody that signed up to quibi for example was on a free trial um <laughs> but um but you know this is not something that is necessarily pub- publicized and you think that you know maybe Obviously, as the recession kicks in a bit when it comes to consumers and consumer spending, they're going to be you know, less minded to, uh, to convert to being paid subscribers. It's, it's interesting. One of, one of the things we, we find in recessions is that certain entertainment packages actually do quite well. Not necessarily your, your big full-fat um, pay TV, um, but consumers, I've, I've always described consumers as a little bit lazy, but actually quite savvy um, as to what they can they can spend their money on, um, and if you've got a cheap source of entertainment that is you know cheaper than than going out and uh, going to the cinema, et cetera, et cetera, consumers are quite aware that that's a way they can fill their time. So smaller services do okay. Um, it's the expensive ones that that really suffer. Um, having having said that, you know this. You're, you're quite right that the the streamers aren't exactly publicizing the fact that they're launching into a year which is is not going to be great in terms of, of overall performance i think it's one of the reasons we're seeing now some quite extreme uh behavior coming out of of, of hollywood namely um the sort of ongoing arguments around simulcasting effectively of, of films via the um, svod and um, theatrical window that model was always bound to be disrupted at some point, wasn't it? I mean, it was. It's, it's if you look at the model in its own right, the windowing, it's slightly ridiculous, isn't it? I think, and it's you know harks back to the to the seventies. <laughs> um, but obviously, I mean, yeah, that has effects for talent uh, as well, doesn't it? You know, when it comes to box office receipts and all sorts of other issues, and I think there's a lots of people in Hollywood that are gearing up for. Uh, various ways of of addressing that you know whether it be lawyers whether it be talent whether it be talent agents etc you know that it, it really hasn't gone down well at all has it it hasn't and and you're absolutely right there's there's a few reasons for that and, and i think it's it's fascinating to talk about the the talent aspect certainly when you're looking at how how talent's compensated everyone from a, from a director to well perhaps not everyone but you know the 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 high end talent is compensated in terms of the performance of the the programming mm. it it is very difficult and it's always been very difficult to ascertain exactly how well um titles are performing on on vod platforms i've had conversations in the uk with certain directors um and in fact guilds of directors who are very curious about exactly the, the performance um, that these titles are getting on uh, on VOD platforms because they don't exactly know the remunerations that the, the directors and the, and the top talent should be getting. And you're right, you know, part, part of this is 
it's a legacy model that's existed from the 70s so all the contracts and the and the legalese are based on it um but at the same time it, it does present some some serious um mm. sort of logistical challenges for the industry you can't blame them can you you can't blame blame warners and hbo max because they've got a whole load of a whole load of movies that they're planning to release in 2021 and there's going to be a fraction of an audience there that there usually would be in theatres to actually to actually view them. So why not prop up their own SVOD service with this AAA content? It's been quite slow to launch already. This is going to give that a huge shot in the arm. It's really interesting uh, disruption of the, the Hollywood model, which I'm sure is going to play out right across the year and and let's see let's see who else you know who else makes the move to take their content direct to, to streaming services mm. so what else have you seeing jonathan in terms of these key trends let's talk about the effect of this kind of this cooling there's two big interaction points uh for any any vod service and one is the interaction between the consumer it's quite an obvious one um, and the second is is the interaction between any sort of aggregation service so mainly pay tv uh, and and telco and they're two parts of a, of a puzzle there that again are, are sort of trends which are being massively accelerated at the moment because of the aforementioned difficulties in actually getting hold of consumers in the first place um, so let's let's touch on um, the sort of integration of svod with with pay tv um mm. We've, we've talked before about that that funnel which is being exhausted um if if you imagine that if you're an svod uh, platform you desperately need to get hold of uh, uh you know more people to fill your funnel and in actual fact the you know the the obvious place to go to that is people who are already spending you know a decent amount on their entertainment needs which means uh sort of pay tv providers and telcos who have the credit card details of everybody who's who's in their uh, ecosystem for the last few years what we've seen is pay tv players and telcos being quite keen to get svod providers added to their ecosystem because it looks great you know buy vodafone buy data and also you can add uh, netflix to your package for 5.99 a month and you can watch anywhere and you can manage it in a very easy fashion so it's been a bit of a one-way relationship i i want netflix i want amazon i want i want disney plus um, and the power has always been very much on the svod end of, of that relationship and that's changing so fundamentally that means that svod need to get access to these pools of subscribers uh, they also don't have it to themselves anymore they've got so many competitors now popping up um, that if a particular um, telco was to prioritize uh, well not prioritize but um, drop a svod service because the terms weren't favorable the repercussions wouldn't be so bad effectively what this means is that in the negotiations between svod and those aggregators the pay tv and the telco people the terms are going to be increasingly favorable to the platforms which means more integration on the consumer side they've got a big push to make sure that libraries are you know nice and joined up no separate netflix amazon uh, disney library but a single single library that you can search um, if you're paying for this stuff uh, it means that it won't be um, necessarily separated into the netflix amazon uh, Disney uh, add-ons, it will be, I want my SVOD bundle. And there'll be a single bundle which includes sort of channels and VOD as a whole. 
this sounds a little bit tedious and technical, but what it actually is, is it, is it represents a kind of closing of a, a grand circle which has been playing out over the last 15 years, which has gone from TV moving to an a la carte model, i.e. SVOD. Now it's being reintegrated into platforms. And in the next year or, or three or four years even, we'll see that brought back into the channel bundling model. Only instead of linear channels, we'll have SVOD. Um, it's my opinion that this is going to happen you know, much, much sooner because of the, you know, the, the, the COVID, uh, the COVID crunch, uh, which is, which is going to be exhausting those. So, you know, a, a real move back to the sort of traditional um, pay TV aggregation model because of the, the trends we've seen over, over the last year. Let me also very quickly do um, sort of streaming maturation, you know, at the same time um, as this, if, if you're, if you're an SVOD, a provider and your growth is starting to slow in your SVOD, you need ways to keep that that going that are also within your control. So not just um, not just relying on partners. And this is where AVOD comes in. So a lot of people saying 2021 will be the year of AVOD. Um, mm. Doesn't necessarily mean AVOD in isolation. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, Pluto TV, which although fantastic, uh, you know, plucky little service that I've got, uh, I'm very keen on. It can also be AVODs, which are integrated with, with, with SVOD services. So the idea that like in a, in a Hulu type service, you can build... Um, a large platform which has its own in-bulk consumer funnel permanently mm. attached to it. So AVOD to draw in um, this user base of, of casually interested subscribers. Um, yeah. And then SVOD to convert them into to fully paying members. And that's another thing I think we'll see a lot of in 2021, the use of hybrid business models um, to create you know, these nice sustainable services rather than relying on partners and advertising and, and yeah. trials yeah I mean, because i was i was really surprised personally that discovery plus didn't launch with an avod option mm. are they relatively late to the market it's difficult to know but i'm i'm guessing but <laughs> the perceived wisdom is that consumers will be looking at you know three or four paid vod services you know would probably be your netflix and maybe the amazon maybe disney plus and maybe one other might be the sort of the maximum that they'd be willing to to stretch to and for discovery plus to launch with a 4.99 and 6.99 model to me i know and i know going back to your early point that they've got distribution through sky q and i think it's verizon in the us so they do have so their subscribers have access to Discovery Plus for a year free of charge. And obviously that's where they're hoping to convert a lot of their subscribers. But, do you, I mean, I think it's incredibly brave them not launching with an AVOD model. What do you think? It feels almost like a bit of an oversight, but I'd caveat that by saying we don't necessarily know what they've decided to do with all their library content. They don't just have to use it on their own platform. They can continue to make sort of distribution deals with with various partners. So, so I do agree because I am I am very keen on the AVOD model as a, as a very efficient um, sort of platform for, for generating business. But yeah, I mean, Discovery's got a huge library of content, which is 
not a high-end TV which draws in subscribers, but sort of bread and butter, which makes up quite a quite a large bulk of viewing. But again, is is very hard to advertise and, and create a a draw for consumers off that, which would normally scream scream AVOD to me. Having said that, you know there are platforms like like Pluto again, which are appearing, which are you know, providing an answer to the question, how do I monetize my library content if it's not SVOD? I agree largely with what you're saying. It's a little bit surprising they didn't integrate AVOD in that. But I'd also say perhaps they they have thought about what else they can do with their library content on our on our looking maybe to keep the keep the business line separate and, and use sort of more traditional distribution methods to monetize that. Yeah, and obviously they also have a, a huge number of sports rights, not least the uh, the Olympics next year and the streaming rights for the Olympics in Europe, I believe. You talked about new aggregators as well. Tell us a little bit about that. This is this is a sort of, a, I don't know, a, a dirty topic of the industry that nobody's talking about. If you look at big players like HBO in the States, you might be surprised to learn that, in fact, the biggest source of new subscribers to them didn't come from pay tv or in fact their own advertising the biggest source of new subscribers to hbo last year uh came from amazon right and this is from their amazon channels uh partnership platform um and i i was running some numbers on this based on you know whatever i could cobble together from various annual reports and the number of uh sort of subscriptions running through amazon channels just in the states was was around 50 million which was was an enormous number, uh, which, was, which was quite surprising to me. But effectively, what it what it means is that Amazon has been proven very successful for using its sort of Prime Video as a as a draw, and then allowing users to add you know one or two subscriptions just to the top of that. You know things like Stars Play, yeah, um, you know Cinemax Showtime, th- things that are more on the thematic. Uh, end of the, the VOD rather than the big generalists like Netflix. And it's kind of demonstrating uh, why pay TV was so good in its day, because it, it brings you to a platform which says, look, here's your content. Here's what you can choose from rather than follow TT distribution, which is just kind of, here's the internet, go find your stuff. Uh, and it's always very difficult to know where to start. But Amazon aren't the only guys doing this. So um, Roku, of course, are, are big players in this game, um, not only in terms of having a, a sort of generic aggregation device, um, but also in terms of having their own paid aggregation platform in terms of uh, Roku channels. Apple is, a, is another uh, player in this game. There's a, there's a few names for these kind of aggregators. You can call them OTT aggregators. Um, we coined a term back at, back at MBI, which was the Alcas, which are the a la carte aggregators. Which I, which I quite liked, is effectively any platform which allows you to add multiple paid services on an OTT player. And these are incredibly appealing if you're a consumer because they allow you complete freedom in terms of how you are subscribing. Uh, so there are never going to be any any bills that are more than a, a month in terms of a contract. You can take it with you anywhere. Amazon is probably, or, or one of these guys, Amazon or Apple, you probably already have an existing relationship with. Um, they already have your credit card details. So it's very easy to start adding these these devices. We know it's been a huge success in the US, and we know that these guys are rolling out across across Europe, across APAC. And it's at a time where if you're a pay TV player, 
things are starting to calm down a little bit. You're, you're aware that your future hasn't been completely destroyed and you're making new relationships with SVOD services. But I do think that there's going to be a new wave of disruption and it's going to come from these Alcas um, who frankly have kind of a, a really unbalanced um, level of competition with people like pay tv let, let me explain that a little bit if your main business is not selling entertainment but you also sell entertainment on the side it means it's very easy for you to sell at cost um, it's very easy for you to make very lucrative partnerships in order to gain market share amazon wants to sell shopping apple wants to sell devices so it makes them very dangerous people to uh, compete with if you are fully in the business of selling entertainment as you keep mentioning they have got the billing relationships with the consumers exactly which is you know if you talk to any anyone who's an expert in subscriber acquisition the biggest hurdle is getting someone to input their credit card details absolutely because it's uh, as you say you know it's going back to what we started talking about it's the uh, perennial trialists that are uh, they're always worried about clicking that button to say you know i'm now committing to x amount of time you know, and I think everybody's been through that. You know, they've been through that pay, you know, the cord cutting. Now, what do they want to do is to add more and more services on? Probably not. But as, yeah, the, the billing relationship is key. And how about uh, mergers and acquisitions next year and this sort of vertical integration you mentioned? This, again, relates to the fact that, you know, streaming as a business is is fascinating. It's, it's changed the way the industry operates, you know, right across the value chain from production all the way to the, the consumer at the other side. But it's not terribly profitable. <laughs> if you look at, you know, anyone who's involved in it, probably Disney aside, there's not huge margins on the streaming game and in fact disney are very important as an example i'll come back to that in a second there needs to be a better way of monetizing ip part of that is what we've been talking about before in terms of hybrid services but part of that is looking at ways that really successful media companies have made their money and i will talk about disney because they've done this so so well and it's vertical integration it's the idea that instead of you know, buying the IP, buying the production, putting it on your channel, and then trying to do something with the rights afterwards. The idea is that if you own all of these segments that fit around your streaming service, you suddenly become a lot more profitable. Why? Because you're not paying that 40% every time you need to license something. So to look at Disney as, as an example, they own the IP. So they own they own the toys. Look at Star Wars. They own the little action figures that go with their kids' programming. They own the rights to the kids' programming. They own a decent amount of production companies that make the programming. Then they own the platforms that show the programming. And then they own the theme parks that you then go to interact with. They own the games. They own so many verticals around their IP that every time that they produce any piece of content, it's advertising for a separate window. If you're a standalone streamer, such as, such as Netflix, but also this extends to people like Warner who, who need to do this a little bit better, you have to make the biggest use of your IP. I put out a, a prediction a couple of years back, which, which didn't come true. I was quite cross about that, which was that Netflix would buy Entertainment One specifically because Entertainment One owns an awful lot of content that was key to Netflix, especially for kids. Um, and it would be perfect acquisition for taking IP, 
showing it and turning it into sort of toys and, and, and things like that. A fantastic saving in terms of actually paying for the rights. And then every time you have a, a toy or a program, one advertises the other. So effectively, consumers are paying you to advertise your products back to them which is very efficient. But of course, that, that didn't happen. Instead, Hasbro bought Entertainment One. And if I wanted to be you know, really controversial, I'd, I'd say that Netflix should, in turn, buy Hasbro as part of this vertical integration, which would give them you know, the IP via uh, Entertainment One, the ability to distribute toys via Hasbro and the ability to distribute the programming via the Netflix streaming service, which would make it a very efficient monetization model in terms of I have IP, I own the rights to it, I advertise it via my streaming services, which consumers pay me for. And I also make the toys, which in turn pay for the streaming service. Um, so that's vertical integration. Fundamentally, the problem is streaming is a, is a low margin business. Um, and it's something that is occasionally talked about in the industry and generally just accepted that there's this huge debt cloud hanging over streaming but it will have to pay for itself at some point and i do believe that the way to do that will involve a large amount of acquisitions around the ip so including production companies including manufacturers including anyone who owns ip to to big franchises and so any standalone streaming service over the next couple of years will, will quickly become not a standalone streaming service and instead a, a mature business that has multiple facets to how it looks at ip and it brings us back to the old adage content is king of course you know if you're a producer and you've got some uh, some good ip then you know the future is relatively bright absolutely probably more so than in the in the past few years there's been a, a huge push to get anything that is everything produced and put on a service and now if your ip is strong i think the value of it is increasing because the the guys with the deep pockets are going to be starting to look at bringing that in-house so yeah absolutely i'm not going to say it's a it's a gold mine but it's certainly going to be more valuable than it has been in the past fascinating jonathan thank you so much for coming on telecast really enjoyed our chat lots of sort of weighty topics and issues there to chew over i think i'd love to uh, have you come back on the show and uh, maybe discuss some of more of those as uh, as the year goes on lovely to be here thank you justin so once again it's time to catch up with our resident career coach and well-being expert tracy forsyth tracy how are you i'm good thank you how are you very well thank you very well what have you got for us this week well, today I thought I'd talk about self-belief and confidence and how you can use your physical body to increase both of those two things. So lots of people that I work with are either terrified of public speaking or um, feel worried about interviews or, or meeting people for the first time. And so I want to show you five simple things that you can do with your body to really make you feel really confident and um, not only feel it, but look it too. Okay. okay. When we are stressed and panicky, our breath gets very short and shallow, doesn't it? The body is really, really clever. So it does its best to help you in times of need and it can do so much more. So if you're ever in a position where you want a boost of confidence and self-belief, then try these methods. 
All right. So the first one is to use your breath. So if you've got a big presentation or a difficult conversation coming up or an interview over Zoom, dare I say, and want to feel powerfully calm, try this. So breathe in for two counts and then breathe out for four counts. So let's do that. So breathe in one, two, and then out for one, two, three, four. In one, two, and then out one, two, three, four. So one more time, breathe in one, two, and then out one, two, three, four. Okay, so that's one thing that you can do. Right, second thing is to stand or sit tall. So if you want to make a physical impact, either around a table and a big meeting or just when meeting somebody for the first time, or even if you're sort of doing a chat on Zoom, pull yourself up to your highest point possible with a long, straight spine. So sit up. And even if you're tiny, you know, this will work. So it doesn't matter whether you're tall or shorter, et cetera, et cetera. Pulling yourself up to the the highest you can be will, will definitely help. So, and actually, if you're already tall, don't slouch to come down to other people's levels. Mm. Standing or sitting tall will not only make you look more confident, but feel it too. So one of the simplest standing postures in yoga is called mountain pose because a mountain is tall and strong. So, you know, stand like a mountain. My third thing is put your shoulders back. So we live in the digital era which means we are almost constantly hunched over a laptop or a smartphone. And what this means is that we are curving inwards with our petrol muscles getting tighter and shorter and our shoulder muscles getting weaker and weaker, pulling everything forward and down. So the more that happens, the harder it is to counterbalance. So on a daily, hourly basis, raise your shoulders up, back and down and keep them back and down. And if this feels weird, it just means you need to do it more. So the benefit of this posture is that your ribs have more room to expand, meaning you can take deeper breaths, enabling you to bring more oxygen into your system. And there's something very confident about having your shoulders back and your chest sort of proudly forward. Yeah, there is. There's a sort of a stance that you assume, isn't there, when you actually do that? And I'm really guilty of hunching my shoulders around. It's just natural, as you say. That's one. So sit up straight with a long, straight spine and put your shoulders back. Okay. So the next thing is about your chin. Okay, so my dad always used to say chin up to me if I was feeling down. And there is something about having your chin up that makes you look confident, nonchalant and undefeated. So having your chin up physically means that the throat is open and not constricted. And in yogic philosophy, the throat area relates to expression and speaking your truth. So we all know that when we're deeply moved or upset, we can have a, a lump in our throat or, or find it difficult to speak. So lift your chin up to free that throat area, enabling you to speak more confidently. And lastly, hold your head high as if you were being pulled by a thread from the crown of your head. So I don't know whether you've watched Beyonce's um, film Black is King, but you might remember what I think is a fantastic quote. You can't wear a crown if your head is down. Mm. So literally hold your head up is if you are wearing a precious crown, you will look regal, empowered, confident, and feel it too. Justin, how are you feeling? 
I'm, I think I could pitch anything to anyone right now. We're all about looking forward to next year in this week's shows. So next year, hopefully, everybody's going to be pitching to everybody and the business is going to explode. So thank you very much for those tips. As usual, we'll uh, include a link both in the episode description, but also in the Telecast Plus newsletter. We'll send a link to one of your exercises there. So thank you so much for being on the show again. You're very welcome, Justin. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it on social media with friends and colleagues. And just a reminder, we've started a new free newsletter called Telecast Plus. We aim to make it the most useful thing coming into your inbox every Friday. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week that you might have missed, jobs news, execs available for hire, Tracy's tip of the week and more insight and opinion that you can shake a stick at. And it's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at www.telecast-podcast.com. That's telecast-podcast.com. And you'll also find that link in the episode description. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers. So until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.